Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode takes you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery, including forced labour and human trafficking. We look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery and highlight the revealing research and the latest developments relating to regulation, policy and practice. In the last season of this podcast, the series covers topics such as financial inclusion, survivor engagement, development finance, due diligence and investor leverage, impact investing, fintech and more. This episode, Canada Leading by Example, is hosted by Tamea Nagy, Chief Executive Officer of Tamea's Cause and former Financial Services Commissioner with lived experience of modern slavery. She is joined by Sarah Paquette, Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre of Canada, FinTrack, and Stuart Davis, Executive Vice President, Financial Crimes, Risk Management, and Group Chief Anti-Money Laundering Officer. This conversation takes us through the Canadian leadership story of working to increase identification of financial flows relating to modern slavery while simultaneously also increasing survivor financial inclusion. Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking is a multi-stakeholder initiative that is part of the United Nations University Centre for Policy Research. Make sure to visit our website, www.fastinitiative.org, where you can access and listen to the podcast through the FAST website in the resources section or major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. For the latest on FAST activities and updates, including the latest e-learning modules, please subscribe to our newsletter and follow our social media channels. On LinkedIn, Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, and on Twitter, at FAST, capital F-A-S-T, underscore, initiative, capital I, N-I-T-I-A-T-I-V-E. I would like to welcome our listeners today. And I am so very excited about today's episode on FAST Podcast. My name is Tamiya Nagy. I am a survival advocate, and I am also learning a lot about the EMS sector or have been learning a lot about the EMS sector for the last seven years. Today on this podcast, we have a very, very special guest joining us, Sarah Packett, who is the director and CEO of Fintrack, and Stuart Davis, who is the executive vice president, financial crimes risk management, and group chief AML officer. I would love to learn more about the last line of your title. Welcome, Sarah, and welcome, Stuart. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for having me. The reason why uh, FAST thought that it would be a great conversation to have is because, especially with both of you here in Canada, is because the project that was started a few years ago and became this global phenomenon about how regulators, bankers can not only find a way to work together, but find efficient solutions 
to fight modern-day slavery and also support victims of human trafficking. So my first question is going to be to you, Sarah. Can you please tell us a little bit of a history of your organization and the work that your organization in Canada have done? Thank you, Timia. And it's a pleasure to be here today, but even more a pleasure to be here with you and Stuart, because that's really how it started. Timia, you went to an ECAM conference and you told your story. And then you said, who can help? And that's how it started for FinTrack, sitting down with you, hearing your stories. And then because you knew so much about this crime and this issue, we were able to actually understand it better and understand what are the typologies. And from the typologies, what would be the indicators? And from the indicators, having BMO as a bank leading with us our first public-private partnership, developing the algorithm, getting the other banks to jump in. So what happened out of that moment of frustration of yours? Who's going to help? It's a beautiful story because that created the first PPP, that's the most well-known PPP, and it's called Project Protect. And out of that, everybody started doing better. So it's not that nobody was not doing their best before, but they didn't know enough to actually be able to understand really how the crime was happening. So looking at transaction, when you actually know that if a young woman is going to a pharmacy at night, may means that she's vulnerable and that's the only time she has to go. Or seeing those transactions, fast food at the end of the day, just once a day, what does it mean for a young person? So if you take those indicators separately, people will not have known that they were bringing a path to human trafficking. But because of your help and your generosity in sharing your story and what you knew about this crime, we were able to come together and build up the first operational alert. So the first operation alert, what is it? It's awareness, it's knowledge, it's people now knowing what kind of transaction they need to focus on. And because of that and the engagement of the banks, we started receiving more and more reports. So we receive more and more suspicious transaction reports related to human trafficking. And because it was the Project Protect, we had this hashtag project. So when the report was coming in, we knew it needed to be on the top of the file and to be dealt with as a priority. So with more reports, it became more disclosure to law enforcement. Law enforcement was also part of this partnership because we needed them to be committed to act on the disclosure. So I think of this ADS crime came a beautiful story of people working together and doing better. And our disclosure to law enforcement increased by 800% in five years. And out of those disclosures, 80% of them are proactive. That means that law enforcement had no idea this was happening. And because the numerous reports and the high quality report we got, because for the banks, the same thing, they knew what more what to look for, the quality of their report improved, the quality of disclosure improved, and the quality of the investigation improved, and we were able to save lives. But even better than that, because we were working closely together and we were getting more information and knowing more about the crime, we were able to update our operational alert because we knew more say, five years later about this crime and those transactions. So all in all, Timia, it started with you. 
And we're still learning. There's still a lot to learn. There's still a lot to do. But that was the blueprint for how FinTrack is doing its work those days. And our PPPs are really the most efficient way for us to do our work. And since Protect, we had started seven others PPPs and looking forward to actually bring it to the other level and now having those PPPs at the international level. So not just one country by one country learning and then sharing, but all countries working together and sharing information in real time. So that's the next level for Protect. So thank you so much, Sarah, for explaining the history of this incredible partnership that you guys formed in Canada, and especially from the FinTrack's perspective. And while I would love to take all the credit, I'm not going to do that. And I'll tell you why. And now I'm looking at Stuart. I was doing a three years tour in the United States with the AMS software company. And at the time, my job was to help the bankers with this software company to teach them about what human trafficking is and what sex trafficking forced labor. I remember flying back one day and on a flight, I was sitting with one of the members of this company. And I said to him, I said, well, there's 5,500 banks in the U.S. So I understand why they don't talk to each other. But in Canada, we only have five. Why can't we have the Canadian banks talk to the regulators and the police? Why can't we just do that? And he said, well, it's not that simple. I said, well, tell me who do I need to talk to and then we'll figure this out. It's only five banks. And he said, it's never been done to this level. And banks and CEOs on a higher up are going to be very reluctant because it's privacy, it's all kinds of regulations. And I said, well... We're going to try our luck. So he said it's going to be a huge mountain to climb. And then, as you said, I went to this ACAMS conference and I have asked the audience if they would be interested to join me on, like, challenge them, basically. But there were individuals who immediately stood up. One of them was FinTrack. And of course, the other member was an individual who at the time worked for another bank, but worked for you, Stuart. And I remembered you and I, Stuart, had a conversation not long ago. And I said, I asked you, Stuart, what made you say yes? Because it's not exactly a crime you want to talk about in the financial industry. This isn't exactly something that you get involved in and it's going to bring profit to your bank. So if I could please ask you, maybe if you can tell us a little bit more, what went through your mind as an executive of one of the largest Canadian bank at the time when Peter Worre came to you and said, we need to do this? Well, thank you, Tamea, for having me. and. That's such an important topic to be discussing today. And you really ask the heart of the question, you know, what inspires you to get engaged on a topic like this? And, and frankly, in some minds, it's very difficult, right? It's difficult to talk about human trafficking or modern slavery, but it's such an important part of the fabric of society where we can truly make an impact and difference. You know, the, personally, it's, I just think it's a moral imperative to do the right thing in society and help people that are in need and and really make a difference to fight crime in all forms and fashions. Of, of course, I'm focused on financial crime, which is a primary thing that we look at through the lens of the banks. But when we think about the impact of human trafficking and the long-term cost to society, we're paying for the destruction human trafficking creates for years 
as a society. And I've always had in my heart to be giving back to society and helping women's shelters. And, and this is really a root cause of the challenge that many women face, right? They've been trafficked or they've been victimized and, and now they're a survivor. And so it had come to my attention through the course of my career, but you're right. There wasn't much being done about it within banks. There were a couple of banks, I think, in the U.S. looking at the topic at a high level. But the reality was the regulations, even here in Canada and in the U.S., were not structured properly to put the eyeballs that needed to be on this within the financial transaction sector. The first problem in the U.S. was that we all had a minimum reporting threshold. Things less than $5,000 just didn't get reported to the government. And then here in Canada, we had the barriers of information sharing, where you don't want to violate the privacy charter. And so there's a, a shyness or a genuinely a, we don't want to get too close to that or have any issues with that. So the regulations just weren't working. And so what really this triggered in, in my mind is, is there a new way? Is there a more innovative way where we can start shifting how we look for human trafficking. And that's where we hit on this idea of the public-private partnership here in Canada, right? Uh, we'd seen used in some other jurisdictions hashtags to identify particular types of crimes. But in Canada, a unique difference is we have a $0 reporting threshold. And, and so naturally, we should be seeing these types of transactions. But there was also a legal argument that these were predicate offenses, right? The, the actual trafficking is a predicate offense that ultimately leads to money laundering once the money is captured by the bad actors and then put into the financial system that starts moving around. Well, that's when the money laundering is occurring because it's the proceeds of crime at that point. And so working with FinTrack, working with the other banks, and how we got this started is we brought a lot of people together in a room and said, what can we do about it? Right? There was dialogue all around the tables from banks, from MSBs, from the National Human Trafficking Hotline, from yourself, from FinTrack as well. And you know, what can we do about it? And we hit upon this idea of information sharing through typology sharing. What are the indicators of this risk? that we can actually see in financial transactions and how can those be leveraged to make a difference. And so that's what led to the Project Protect. And it led to a model that we've been able to replicate on other impactful topics. And another one I sponsored was Project Shadow, where we're focused on the challenges of child sexual abuse material and the purchase of that material through financial transactions as well. We call that Project Shadow. We've also looked at, you know, the challenges of fentanyl, the, the challenges of elder abuse and things of that sort. So all of these are areas that have a huge societal impact. But we didn't stop there. And I, in a moment, I'd really like to talk about the FAST initiative and, and the impact that that has made, because it's the natural evolution of where we were with Project Protect to where we can be now and tomorrow. That's a fantastic lead, Wayne. So first of all, as a survivor, I'm listening to everything that you and both Sarah is saying. And yes, I may have been the one who have challenged and inspired, but I always say I could have literally inspired and challenged and nobody got up. 
And there could have been that no FinTrack, no banks, nobody would have got up and there would be no story to tell. It would be just me as a loser standing on stage and five minutes later I have to walk off and and pretend that that didn't happen. But here we are, seven, eight years later, you guys really have done what nobody thought can be done which I think as a survival who's sitting here as a survival advocate, I never thought I would see this much changes in one lifetime. So I would like to applaud both of you and everybody who was a part of making these changes and advocating. And I think sometimes as a leader, you take these risks, not knowing where it's going to lead you. In this case, phew, nobody got fired and we are still here. And not only that, you guys are all being appraised for the work. And that being said, I think FAST initiative have played a huge part where the very beginning of FAST initiative goal was to write the report and bring the awareness. And the second stage of FAST initiative mandate was to mobilize the financial sector. And while they had an idea how to do that, Canada just went ahead and did it. So I think FAST initiative was basically that lit all these fires, so to speak, across the world. And I think Canada just kind of brought it home in in a sense. And now we see this trends and changes all around the world. And I think it's just amazing to see that it all started in Canada. So that being said, if we zoom out of Canada for a moment, we all travel the world. We all know what other challenges other countries' leaders have What would you say to them as leaders in this position where you are today, after everything that you had to go through to get to where you are today with these initiatives? I can't imagine everybody said yes to you all the way. So now we are talking about the happy ending, but I can only imagine how many challenges you both had to go through as leaders within your own organization. So would you have a message to other regulators and other executive decision makers around the world that are listening to this message or conversation right now. Any inspiring ideas, suggestions on how to just keep on going and achieve anything that they want to achieve? Sarah. Thank you, Temea. Well, I think my experience has been that people need to know that AMLTF, so anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing, all starts with greed. It all starts with profit. So when you look at those profits, it's it's not white-collar profit all the time. It's not just about fraud and tax evasion. That money that they want to launder is coming from somewhere. It's coming from victims. It's coming from vulnerable people. So when we all strive to have a strong economy and a strong financial system, how can we say that we will have a strong financial system and we're good at putting control in place if we're not protecting the most vulnerable? And that's what I say. When I go to conference or I meet with people or I go to meetings, doesn't matter what the topic of the day is. I never leave the room without talking about the victim because we all have a duty to care and it's a right thing to do. 
And when it's the right thing to do, there's always a way to do it. So this is what I'm telling everybody. And I'm telling everybody every day that we have to care about those systems and we cannot pretend to work to have a strong financial system if we don't take care of the most vulnerable. And when you bring the most vulnerable to be survivor and to strive in society, we have a stronger economy. Thank you so much, Sarah. So well said. I'm covered in goosebumps. Stuart, I can't imagine you won't have something incredible and inspiring to say. So I can't wait to hear your answer. Well, I love what Sarah said. You know, we we truly do all have a duty of care as people in this world, right? And people that can really make a difference. And we care for our customers as we work for corporations, but care for society, I think, is the bigger calling that we should all aspire to. You know, what really I had to do was, yes, I had to take a stand, took a stand for something I thought's important and start introducing it to the primary program, right? The, the argument at the time was, well, this is not our our main focus, right? And you had to challenge those views and perspectives and not only convince within our own organization, again, I was with a different bank at the time, but also convince with other banks, right? That might say, well, that's only a predicate offense. It doesn't really matter. We're not, we don't need to do anything. And so the convincing part of that, and I think people naturally get it once you have that level of discussion. It's not malintent, generally speaking, on behalf of others, but perhaps it's just a misunderstanding or being scared of engaging on a sensitive topic, right? There's people that are intimidated by that. But the best thing you can really do is just get started and start talking about it. And once we did, it's surprising the number of people that stood up and said, hey, I want to help with that. I want to be engaged, right? People that were not within the AML program, people that across the organization said, yeah, I believe in that. You know, I want to help make a difference. And really that partnerships you start forming internally and externally. I mean, there's so many amazing NGOs that are making a difference in this space. There's so many shelters that are making a difference in this space. So putting your money, putting your actions where your mouth is, is the next step in the process. So we started engaging with different groups, perhaps more on where do we direct some of our annual giving was the initial steps. But then more recently, when the FAST initiative came along in 2019, we said, wow, there's a whole nother dimension on this. How do we help survivors of human trafficking? And it was great to see the leadership, you know, by the Liechtenstein initiative around FAST through the UN. Of course, having a big organization like the UN behind something helps inspire action, but it wasn't a very big thing. In fact, in Scotiabank, we said, we're going to open five accounts, just five accounts for survivors of human trafficking within that year. And we kind of scratched our heads. How are we going to do that? How are we going to get those referrals? How are we going to identify the individual's where can we, you know, have good quality referrals? Because we want this to be a success, right? And we want the the evidence to prove that it's working. So we started realistically developing our own model, right? And saying, how do, how do we need to engage on this with the communities that we serve and start building a network? So we partnered with NGOs across the country that represent and support survivors, and especially those that are focused on reintegration of survivors into society. Because 
Once an individual is trafficked, usually their financial life is totally destroyed. Their credit's abused by their trafficker. Their understanding of banking and, and money, even more importantly, gets twisted. How do you attach value to money? How do you walk into a branch and feel confident about opening an account when their last experience in the branch was when their trafficker took them in and forced them to open an account? It's the trauma of many of these things around money, because this crime is, as to Sarah's point, all about greed and money, the trauma associated with that has to be addressed. And working closely with the NGOs to say, you know, and closely within our own banking institution to say, here's some people that have been especially trained in survivor-based trauma, and how can we hold the hands of these individuals as they want to reintroduce themselves to the financial sector. That's the approach we took. And so we built a very small program around that and started taking one step at a time. And it really goes to my point, just get started, just do something small, and then the path will become clear. And from that today, we've already extended the program, not just to the human trafficking sector, but survivors of domestic abuse, where we're leveraging now into indigenous groups as well that face many of the similar challenges. And so it's creating a a huge opportunity here in Canada. But we haven't stopped there, right? We're starting now to think about how we take this more globally in countries where Scotiabank operates. And we're in close proximity and working with other financial institutions as well. Thank you so much, Stuart. What a great overview of what happened in the last few years. And to Sarah's point, it's you just do the right thing. You just do the right thing. And to your point, Stuart, you just start somewhere and the road will show up and people will show up to assist you. And to your point, Stuart, from the FAST initiative's perspective, the program that you're referring to that started out out of FAST is called the Survival Inclusion Initiative. So for those of you who are listening and would like to follow up on this program and find out how to help survivors in the banking industry, just like Scotiabank did, please visit the FAST organization's website. And underneath, you will find information on the Survival Inclusion Initiative. And that was actually inspired by two survivors that were on a committee on the Liechtenstein Task Force. And I was one of them, and we had another survivor name is James. And towards the end of our three years of task force conversations, the task force members asked us, what else can bankers do for survivors? And we said, well, we need banking. And while I was on the task force, sitting around across the room from CEOs of the biggest banks in the world, I still didn't even have a credit card. I still couldn't even check into hotels. I was a nobody in the system, which it kind of occurred to me during that conversation. And James and I both were looking at each other. We're like, well, it would be nice to have uh, opportunity to be banked. And that conversation trickled on and then it became the inclusion initiative. And then Scotiabank took it like the whole other level. But you're right, Stuart, You just have to start. So step one is from what I'm hearing from both of you is to get the buy-in. Step two is just do it. Now, you guys started this initiative 
And I understand you worked out your own programs and you are extremely successful, but it wasn't without its challenges. And one of the biggest challenge was how do you bank an individual without an ID? And I understand that there was conversations with FinTrack. Sarah, if you could please tell me how on earth a Canadian financial regulator was able to overcome that tiny, tiny, teeny little bit of a issue, which actually is a huge issue, which is why 90% of the survivors cannot be banked because they don't have an ID. So I understand you and the banks worked out a program that kind of wiped out that challenge completely. If you could please tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So even regulator can have humility, you know. So when you have a system that it's based on know your client and you have the regulations to support it and obligation to financial institution, and when you go and you do an exam, you're looking at if they're doing it well. Well, it doesn't mean that it's perfect. And when we heard about the FAST initiative and I was talking to Daniel Tereskaf and he was asking me if I could help, I said, Daniel, there's no way track is going to be in between the survivor and a financial institution helping them to get their life back. FinTrack is going to help. So I just did exactly what you said, Timea. I went to the team and I said, just do it. And it was difficult for them because, you know, those regulations have not been intended to be drafted in a way that we were going to be flexible on how we were to identify those survivors and how the nonprofit organization and the social workers were going to actually play a role to provide the identification of the individual. So they really had to think differently. And we also work with colleagues FCAC, who is responsible for the Bank Act and to which some regulations were falling under them to say, this is the problem we have to solve. This is the way we want to solve it. Would you want to work with us to make this possible? And they said, yes. So again, when you say about buy-in, there was buy-in by telling the story, explaining why. And I think that's the way we need to work together. So we need to be able to think about what's the problem. And if there's a problem, there's a solution. So how are we going to go about it? Are we able to build a structure to take some risk, but with a meaningful approach and to lead by example? You know, you want to do the right thing. You need to lead by example and then work in partnerships. FinTrack by itself would not have been able to do it. Scotia will live in it, but they needed the survivors organization to support the program and they needed FinTrack to say, yes, Scotia, when you're going to use those forms of identity identification, FinTrack is going to be right there with you and support you. So it takes a village. I love that you said that because my closing thoughts would be is I had the absolute honor to meet around the world all the people, the passionate people who work on front lines, who are in supportive roles of their directors, management, CEO. And years and years ago, they were the one who started to go to their management and their leadership to say, we have a problem, we need to do something. And so I think it was kind of like a sandwich approach where the frontline guys got really passionate and then the leadership started to hear about it too. And you guys started to to meet somewhere in the middle. 
But I don't think this conversation would do honor unless we talk a little bit about your team members, because your team members are the one who are moving the needles. Absolutely, we need buy-in. Absolutely, we need a positive leadership leaders like yourself who will say yes. But none of this would be possible if you guys don't have some passionate, incredible team members on your team who actually want to move the needle. So I would like to kind of finish this conversation off with, please tell us a little bit about your teams, the the people behind the scenes who are working on these programs, who are putting the reports in front of you, who are coming up with more ideas, who you really, really appreciate their leadership and their support within your team. Stuart, I'll be a little selfish because one of the person that I work with very closely on your team, Gilberto, Gilberto is one of the example of all the individuals in non-management level who work volunteer hours, sacrifice family times simply because of the passion and because they can, because they get the support from higher above. So please tell me a little bit about who's this incredible team behind you who's been putting all these projects and executing all these incredible steps that you have been talking about. Well, thank you. Timea, and yes, I will too acknowledge Gilberto, but there's many others folks on my team and throughout the years who have made an incredible difference in this. So it's Gilberto Sodolia, Joe Mario, I've got Nunzio Traditoria, and Alia Lalani, among many others that have made an impact. And behind the scenes even further, we have folks like David Lee and people that do some regulatory and legal analysis for us to really figure these things out. But it's our job as leaders to give air cover, right? And then a lot and say, here's the challenge. Let's go work on this. And all of this leverages the power of the public-private partnerships because what we've done, the, some of the ideas we've come up with, we then have taken them to FinTrack and, and the FCAC and others to say, could this work? Could we make this work? We got inspiration on the financial access side from really the Somalian refugees many years ago and how they were brought into the financial inclusion here in Canada. Uh, Very simplified due diligence. And we said, hey, maybe we could adopt some of the similar simplified due diligence approaches that made that work in the case of, of survivors. And so where we landed was, could we get a solid letter of reference from an NGO based on an agreement with the NGO that they provide that meeting certain criteria. And then working with that document, you know, opening a basic banking account and then giving the survivor, you know, a year to procure the additional type of identification documents and return uh, back to Scotiabank and provide those as as necessary for the long-term approach. So it was asking the government, hey, are you willing to accept this initial form of documentation as request number one, Two, is it appropriate to have this window of time for the additional documentation to be collected? And and that has been a game changer. It was introduced February of this year, February 22nd, in fact, on Human Trafficking Awareness Day in Canada. And we've since run with that, right? It's, It's already making a huge difference. And furthermore, let's not stop with just a banking account, right? What can we do to offer a modest but suitable credit product. What can we do to now 
asking the questions, working with the credit agencies to clear some of the damage that was done to credit profiles. Where does that make sense? And so these are the types of discussions. We're not done. I mean, that's the point, right? We're not done. And all of these great people you mentioned are continuing to work on these these issues and look for what problems can we solve. But another area I'll say is training is an incredible, important part of this, right? Because how you do this, how you create trauma-aware individuals throughout the organization, because they're the ones that are working day-to-day with the survivors, is incredibly important. And if I could name all their names, I would do so. But it's already a big, big network of folks that have that level of training and sensitivity awareness and know how to instruct and access to banking and basic financial services that's so needed. And we hope that the network continues to grow, not just through our efforts, but there's been other banks, right, here in Canada and across the the globe that have adopted a similar program. So this program's not secret, and we're willing and open to share it with those that are interested in getting involved. So please reach out to us if that's something you want to make a difference in. Yes. So at FinTrack, we have our FIU, our Financial Intelligence Unit, and we also have our Compliance Directorate, and we have our Strategic Policy Directorate. So each of those teams are doing their part to actually bring our path forward. So when you look at the intelligence team. It's led by Barry, supported by Dan, but we have a small team of women where all they do is to look at suspicious transaction report related to human trafficking. So Shauna and Stephanie are working every day and they are truly dedicated and they always ask themselves, how can I do better? How can we do this faster? How we can we push those priorities and ensure that uh, they will give enough to law enforcement to start an investigation? And on the compliance side, really, people are afraid of compliance people. It's like auditors. You don't really want them to come and look around your things and tell you what you're doing right and what you're not doing so right. But at FinTrack, we want compliance to be perfect. We want compliance because we want everybody to comply. So then we will get the reports we need and then we'll be able to provide the intelligence to law enforcement. So the compliance people led by Donna and Stefan are just so energetic as well, to make it simple, to make it efficient. And really, they were the ones striving to find a solution throughout those policy and regulation interpretation to make a way to do it, to make it happen. And at the same time, their brain didn't stop. It's what's next. Who are the next vulnerable people that we will be able to help if we think this way? And the same way legal services was involved to talk to their colleague at the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada because they needed to be part of the deal. Like they needed to agree with this interpretation of their and regulation for us to move forward. So it's a village effort. But I think in any work environment, people are coming to work in the morning because they want to do a good job. When they come to work at FinTrack, it's easy to be engaged in the purpose and the mandate of the organization. So it's our job as leader to remove the barriers and ensure that the way is there for them to pave and to strive and to move forward. So I always say at the end of the day, I don't do anything because it's everybody around me that are doing the work at FinTrack. But if I can remove barriers and empower them to do better, then that's my job at the end of the day. That's so wonderful. And for both of you, just in closing, I think the hardest part of your job in a banking, regardless 
or the financial sector, regardless of which position you are in, management or frontline work, is that you'll never get to really experience firsthand the such a great and positive work and the outcome of your positive work. So it's not like you'll be able to talk to a survivor down the road one day and say, hey, wow, you were rescued because my guys were able, you know, you'll never be able to see the outcome of your hard work. So for that reason, I just want to give you two small examples, how much your work, all of your work in the financial sector, especially when you work against modern day slavery, can change somebody's life. So one example is when I was a survivor and it was just a few years after me getting out of sex trafficking, trying to reintegrate myself back into the community, but there was no help at the time. Unfortunately, I lost my apartment due to a personal tragedy, and I didn't have a way of paying $500 in a moment, so I was going to be evicted. And I went to a bank, and I didn't have a bank account. I didn't know anything, but I asked if they could give me a $500 loan or a visa or a credit or something. I just need $500 and I'm going to pay it back in like four weeks. I did have a job at the time. And they said, no, you're not eligible. You can't, you know, no. The answer is no, 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 no. But if you give us $500, we can give you a secured credit card. And I said, if I had $500, I wouldn't give it to you. I would pay for my rent. Unfortunately, that was literally my last resort. And as a result, I didn't want to be a homeless. So I actually returned back to the sex industry myself for about three months, this time as an independent, to save enough money so that I won't be on the streets. And after that, I became a volunteer and I went to school and I started my organization a few years later. That being said, from the age of 24 to 44, I always needed a co-signer. Every time I buy a car, I rent, I lease, no matter where I went, I always had to call my dear friend and father figure to co-sign for me. What that does to you, it makes you feel like you are not a real person. You're not accepted in society, no matter how many awards I had or how many victims I worked with, or no matter what I've done. When it came to me walking in any banks, I was always a nobody, didn't exist I'm a nobody. So at the age of 44, I bought a car. And for the first time, because I worked on my credit, I did everything I could. For age of 44, for the first time, I bought a car. And of course, I called my father figure and said, I'm buying a car. You know, the drills, like, no problem. And the Scotiabank <laughs> offered me a loan. I was like, yeah, no problem. I'll bring my co-signer. And when I went in to sign the papers, I'm so used to having my name here and the co-signer have to sign there. And they didn't need a co-signer. It was Kosher Bank who gave me my first loan without the co-signer. And I looked at the paper and this lady's like, no, no, you sign here. I'm like, no, I know. But like, what do you mean I don't need the co-signer? She goes, no, you don't. Like, Scotia thought... And I actually started crying and the lady's like, no, no, it's a good news. I said, I, I know you don't understand. Like you don't. Fast forward two years later, we bought a company car. So again, Scotia approves us. It's a company car. But then the financial guy says, there is a problem. I said, of course, there's always a problem. I'll call my co-signer. He's like, no, no, no. I don't need a co-signer. I need you to co-sign 
for your car. Like, you want me to co-sign. I can be a co-signer. Yeah, you're going to be a co-signer. So I went from a nobody to needing a co-signer, to not need a co-signer, to become a co-signer to my own card. And that was two months ago. And I can't even tell you how that made me feel. The sad part is that it took 20 years to get there. But with your help and everything that you guys are doing, is going to reduce that 20 years. And can you imagine for a second, what would that like for an individual not to wait 20 years and have feuding cause and become a middle-aged woman to feel like that she matters and she's no longer a ghost? Wow, that's so inspiring and such a beautiful illustration of how we can make a difference. And your own personal experiences should be an inspiration to us all to you know, step it up a notch and continue to make an impact in this space. And again, take those baby steps, but do so with purpose, right? We all have a purpose in this world. We all have an opportunity to change the world and make an impact and make it better. And what we're doing with the FAST initiative, what we're doing with access to banking for survivors is, I think, one of the most powerful, incredible things that's out there. And and that falls, frankly, in line with what we do each and every day, right? So it's not an additive thing. It's, in my opinion, it's a must do, right? We must do this. We must continue to look at ways that we can help and make a positive impact. And your words continue to be an inspiration for us all. Yeah. And I think in addition to what you both said, we should not forget that you didn't have credit, not because of you, but because of what people did to you. So my son, who's 20 years old, will go and ask for a credit card is starting from a blank sheet. He doesn't have credit because he didn't use credit, but they will give him a 650 points card to start. And then with time and good habits, this score will increase. But your score was brought to zero, none of your fault. So my hope for us today, and maybe that's my next call to action, is why would the FAST initiative not be the protect of bringing survivors the right to a credit score that is their own. So by starting by giving them financial services, are we going one day to be able to have discussion and give them the credit card they own when they start living their life as a young adult? I think that's what we should aim for. That is a fantastic way to end this conversation. Thank you both so very much for your leadership. Thank you both so very much for this conversation and help us to understand step-by-step where we came from, how we got there, and where are we about to go. And for those of you that are listening and would like to learn more, you can find connection and information on Stuart Davis and Scotiabank and a survival inclusion initiative through FAST. And you can also find all the information on the Scotiabank website. And if you would like to learn more about the part that FinTrack was playing in Project Protect, again, just Google Project Protect, there will be email addresses that can lead you to team members who can help you connect with either Sarah or learn more about the project. Again, thank you everybody for being here with us and thank you so much Stuart and Sarah for contributing to this incredible conversation. Thank you for having us. Very nice being here.